Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We love it when you come and share your time with us, and we make every effort to make sure that the material we give you is interesting, fascinating, enlightening, and uh, yeah, maybe a little bit tantalizing here and there so that it stretches you into doing some research on your own. I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for the amazing intro. Check out, uh, Google him, and check out his... Uh, Native storytellers, he and his wife have preserved that tradition for a very long time, and it's amazing and interesting to see how other cultures preserve and share their their history and their stories and their, cosmolo- and their cosmology. Tonight, has uh, Mark has a lovely guest that we've had on before, and they're going to be talking about a new book that is out, and uh, I'm very excited because the topic is interesting to me. Um, because we've had Catherine on before, so um, she's going to be helping to enlighten us all as well. So, Mark, the show is all yours. Okay. Um, We have done two of the four shows this week. Uh, We're just getting started on the third. Uh, So, yeah, I think the listeners are getting a wide variety of historical topics th- this week. Uh, yeah, your Sunday and Monday shows were excellent. Yeah, they were fun. They they were mm-hmm. they were more than fun. They were. Um, I learned a lot, and um, both of them were you know, very very different. You know. Spectrums, mm-hmm. but both of them were uh, fascinating for me, and and I had a great time. So, and mm-hmm. I, I intend, right. I'm sure I'm going to have a great time tonight too. Okay, yeah, I have to go over one thing, and we'll start delving into our topic. Um, and so sometimes we need to stop and acknowledge those who helped us to get to where we are 
And a couple weeks ago, uh, Buddy Cage passed away. You know, Buddy was the pedal steel virtuoso for the new riders of the Purple Sage. And we met a few times. And when he called me about an interview I had arranged for him, he gave me a four-year college communications degree in about a, you know, over a 20-minute phone call. Uh, and he discussed being prepared, organized, and the importance of pre-production. And those are the work ethics are brought to nightlight, and you know, I think we're going fine. So you know, I just wanted to do a little tribute to Buddy and some of my condolences to Elvira and the New Riders family. Um, we have a return guest who will be introducing us to a reissued book and discussing an important conference. Uh, Catherine Children is the author of Shakespeare Suppressed, and we will be discussing the importance of Shakespeare identified. It's thoroughly researched book. Uh, so much of the Shakespeare authorship controversy can be traced back to J. Thomas Loney's book. Um, it's really... It's really a uh, fascinating book. Um, I highly recommend. And you know, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, these themes that he brought up that you know, we really haven't uh, covered on these other shows with Catherine and Alex McNeil and. Ramon Jimenez, but yeah, you know, there's when he was uh, brought up, um, you know, the author of the uh, plays attributed to Shakespeare was a medievalist instead of a man of the Renaissance, and De Vere suddenly uh, stopped writing, and Shakespeare emerges. Um, that that gives us you know more evidence that there were at least uh, two people involved in this um, conspiracy. I I don't know what you do. historical mystery. Uh, you know there are hidden clues in the echo poem. If you like the topic of this Shakespeare authorship controversy, uh, this is a, a fantastic book. So, uh, hi, Catherine. How are you? Hi. I'm I'm well. I'm delighted to be on again. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you now we're going to be covering Shakespeare Identified. Uh, the book is... Um, being uh, is is reissued the right word uh, as part of the celebration of the 100th anniversary of its publication. Yes, the book came out in 1920, so yes, it's the 100th anniversary, and it was published on March 4th, um, 
And so people, like-minded people like me and you, um, are going to meet in Washington, D.C. to celebrate um, at the Washington, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Press Club um, on that date. So um, it's very important to Oxfordians. Um, he, this is the founding of our theory, uh, if you still want to call it a theory. Um, a schoolmaster named J. Thomas Loney, uh, actually it's pronounced Looney, um, and people say Loney as well, um, he uh, taught Shakespeare to his students over and over and over the place. He was very well versed in them. And he was looking at the biography, and it just didn't quite square with the impression that the works gave him of who the the, the real author was, what he was like. And that, that started his book. Okay, so okay, th- this is the book that identified, you know, g- gave us a name with the real a- author of the plays that are, you know, world masterpieces. Yes. Um, the controversy of who Shakespeare really was pretty much erupted in the mid-19th uh, mid century. And um, Fran- Sir Francis Bacon was the first person promoted um, because, primarily because of his outstanding um, educational background. And it, that sort of person... Um, is of the same caliber that Shakespeare was. So, um, but, uh, and the Baconians uh, put out wonderful books uh, against the Stratford man, that it could not have been the man born in Stratford-on-Avon, a real person who was born with the name William Shakespeare. Um, But because there is no lifetime evidence that he had any education or that he was a writer, um, it, it, you know, it, it depressed his case. I mean, wh- where, where is this man? He's like a mystery man. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have any evidence of schooling. We don't have anything in his handwriting. We don't have payments to him as an actor or a playwright. Um, when he died, there was no notice of his death. So all these things like, you know... <laughs> look a little odd, all these zeros. And so the Baconians pretty much advertised this and wrote great books about it. But um, I think maybe when Loney, um, maybe I'm sure he looked at some of these works. I'm sure he couldn't quite square Francis Bacon as the author based on his impression of the writer of the plays. And... Um, he methodically kind of went about it, and he, he made a list of what the the great author had as far as characteristics. Like he had to have been somebody who was a recognized genius, who was, I'm just reading off what he wrote, um, he was apparently eccentric and mysterious, 
unconventional. Um, he was enthusiastic with the drama, had a superior superior classical education, and then he further goes on to say he had to be an aristocrat, and and he makes this long list. And the the way he was going to find his man, um, he was going to look at an anthology of 16th century verse, you know, all different sorts of writers. And he was specifically looking at the writers that wrote in a certain rhyme scheme, like six lines, uh, six line stanzas. I don't know the exact term for it. But anyway, he, in in the this certain anthology that he picked up, he looked through it all, and there were only two authors who wrote that way. One of them was anonymous, and the other one was the Earl of Oxford. And and he didn't know anything about the Earl of Oxford, so he went to the Dictionary of National Biography and he looked into, you know, the, his history, and you know, one after the next, after the next of these characteristics, just kind of perfectly suited. Um, the Earl of Oxford, you know, so uh, and the great author. So that was his great discovery, and I would say um, it, it really was the greatest discovery in Shakespeare scholarship. But <laughs> no one, unfortunately, no one knows this, <laughs> and they don't even know who made this discovery. So that's the point of our trying to get the word out with uh, this conference and, and the 100th anniversary. Okay, and and Catherine, you just mentioned that Loney was trying to find his man. Uh, You know, this Shakespeare-identified book really is an early version of uh, profiling of uh, I don't know if it's would be considered forensic uh, profiling, but what uh, Loney does to find his man is is basically that you know, just looking for the little bit of information that uh, w- it was uh, uh, available, you know, like the Burley papers uh, on um, the Earl of Oxford. You know, the, the, there was some information on him, but there was, wasn't anything on Shakespeare. So you know, in, in the wake of, Freud and all of his psychological theories uh, developing at the turn of the 20th century. Um, it, you know, Shakespeare identified as really a very intense um, profiling book. Yes, it was. It was very methodical, and um, you know, every page he kind of you know, wants to um, address a doubts that people, you know, he always tries to give both points of view. And um, he, he does it in a very succinct manner. 
and um, mm-hmm. you feel very confident as you move through the book with him that he he is really uh, building his case and um, is, is being successful at it. And you can also see his personal enthusiasm um, when he when he you know makes a certain parallel that he thinks is exciting and um, yeah I mean it must have been a you know a great joy for him to work on this book. Yeah, and yeah, there are examples that you know. For, from this you know, really where he he discussed the the book being his theory but he does make some very valid points and you know just looking at um um achievements of other authors he, he he does discuss that you have uh, Dante and uh, Cervantes, you know all, all these people that wrote these great masterpieces were uh, much older in life. Uh, the, Masterpieces come from maturity. Um, we just don't see that ha- happening with if we just stick with Shakespeare as being the author and he's only what uh 26 years old Milton was 55 when when he completed uh Paradise Lost Scott was 43 uh when he was starting on the Waverly novels um Loney's time frame of attributing this work to Shakespeare the man from Stratford just doesn't add up based on the the maturity level to produce these masterpieces. Yes, and there's no, um, you don't see any, they, they call it juvenilia, you don't see any um, youthful works um, supposedly written by the Stratford man. All you have, like for example, um, in 1593 was the first printed the word, the name as an author, William Shakespeare, um, which was attached to the poem Venus and Adonis, which is a very sophisticated poem. Um, uh, I think it's a, a thousand lines or something like that. Of They call it rhyme royal. Um, and yet in the opening dedication, he, uh, the, the great author the, uh, mentions that this is the first heir of my invention. And, and, you know, your first reading of that would be, oh, this is the first thing he ever wrote. But it's impossible because it's too sophisticated. So um, anti-Stratfordians, uh, like me, you know, we see that as uh, he's referring to 
the poem, his first usage of his pen name, William Shakespeare, um, on, on a work. That is the first era of his invention. It's his invented name. So um, that's the bottom of the theory is that the name William Shakespeare was someone, someone's pen name. And um, the, the man from Stratford was a real person, and he was, but he was born with that name, William Shakespeare. Um, actually pronounced Shakespeare, if you look at the documents of the period, um, how it was spelled phonetically. So, um, you know, outside, when you have all these ab- absences that I mentioned, like, you know, no, no education as far as we know, no contacts, important contacts as we know, no, nothing in his handwriting, et cetera. You, ha- you add up all those zeros, and the concept of a pen name makes sense. So um, we're, we're, we shouldn't be looking for information of a William Shakespeare. We should be looking for the man using the pen name William Shakespeare. So it's a kind of a you have to have a, a new point of view um, when you're looking at Shakespeare. But there were actually two William Shakespeare's, one born with that name and another one using a pen name. Okay, and yeah, uh, I thought that was an in- interesting point, and or just, you know, just mentioned it in the opening rant. It was interesting that uh, there's the the Edward de Vere's you know, like mature writings uh, suddenly stop and all of a sudden Shakespeare's writings are are being published. It's just. It, 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 it just seems like there's like this merging of two uh, people. I, that, that that really put the hooks in me about you know for, from the, the, this book. I, it, it was very uh, captivating to see that something isn't adding up. Uh, the, the, the pen name. Now that you brought it up, does start to make sense, and yeah, there, yeah. Also in the book, there's uh, yeah, a lot of information about Edward de Vere. Um, fraternizing with uh, other members of the nobility and one of the people that with whom he had a rivalry was uh, Sir Philip Sidney and there was this documented uh, uh, this is the first time I've heard that story. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what yes. what happened um, in that rivalry? Yeah, um, in 1579, the Earl of well, Sir Philip Sidney, who was um, a courtier poet like the Earl of Oxford, 
um, he was playing tennis, and uh, the Earl of Oxford came in, and he either wanted to join them or he wanted, you know, them maybe to to move or something. <laughs> and keep in mind that tennis is an aristocratic sport that the great authors seem to know a great deal about. Um, anyway, so Philip Sidney didn't. Sir Philip Sidney didn't move, um, and I, the Earl of Oxford, I think, you know, just called him a puppy. Uh, and I, I eventually, at some point, uh, Sidney wanted to challenge him to a duel, but the Queen would not allow it. But, I mean, you, you could say that they were rivals, in a way, um, in, in literature, and they had kind of two different ways of writing, two different schools of writing. Um, and also, the uh, Sir Philip Sidney was... Uh, at one point, almost engaged to the woman who Oxford would eventually marry. So uh, there was a little bit of dynamic going on. And also Sir Philip Sidney mm-hmm. was the um, supposed heir to the Earl of Leicester, because the Earl of Leicester, he did not have any legitimate male heirs, and uh, Sidney was his ne- his nephew. So um, there was kind of a little rivalry uh, in that sense mm-hmm. too. So, um, yeah, that's just one incident that uh, Loney brings out. But he also gets very excited when he learned about the character Bertram in All's Well That Ends Well, uh, which is a Shakespeare comedy. And Bertram is the main character, and he's a nobleman from a, a an aristocratic family. And his mother... Um, sort of adopts a young lady uh, to live in her house, in her household with him. And anyway, um, the husband dies. Bertram's father dies. And Bertram is hasn't quite reached 21. And it was a feudal custom back then that if you lose your father and you have an underage son, uh, the king of sort of he he comes into the king's household he or the king appoints somebody to be the guardian and well those you have parallels right there um the earl of oxford experienced the same thing he was 12 years old when his father the 16th earl passed away so it meant that he became an a ward of the court just like bertram and so Oxford moved into the home of his guardian, William Cecil, Lord Burley. And um, he, Lord Burley had uh, a daughter who was about five years younger than Oxford. Um, in the play, the, the, the daughter falls in love with Bertram, and, but Bertram does not you know, uh, have the same feelings. And the similar thing happened with the Earl of Oxford. Uh, Young Anne Cecil, you know, fell in love with the Earl of Oxford, uh, but he was not interested. But Burley had the power to arrange his marriage, just like the king in Bertram's case would would allow the marriage. So he he set it up that he was going to marry his daughter. And... um, there was one wedding date, and Oxford did not go to it. So, I mean, he was really adamant. But eventually he came around and did and did marry her. But Bertram 
um, although he went through the marriage ceremony, um, he would not live in the same house with her, and he did not sleep with her. And he was adamant about this, and he just, you know, went, He, I think he went traveling, and, you know, he had mistresses of his own. And um, an interesting part of the play, which really got Loney excited, was that the lady, that young lady who loved him, arranged it so that when Bertram was sleeping with one of his mistresses, that she, that they would do a switch at night, in the, in the thick of night. And um, so the lady that loves Bertram ended up sleeping with him, and he got her pregnant. And anyway, it's later revealed at the end of the play. But um, the Earl of Oxford also had an incident, and this is recorded in history books, of a bed trick in the same way. So, I mean, these, you can't make these things up, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these are uh, bio- autobiographical touches that the great author has inserted in the works, and it just so happens the Earl of Oxford has these same things. And the same with Hamlet, who, who on his way back to Denmark, his ship was attacked by pirates, and he was stripped bare. Well, the same thing happened with the Earl of Oxford. After he took his grand tour of Europe, he came back crossing the Channel, and pirates uh, attacked his ship and took all of his possessions. So um, these are just a few parallels. There's there's so many others. So all, all of that information is... Um clearly documented um you know this you know we we can get into this sonnets maybe uh a little bit but the example from all's well that ends well in hamlet um sir philip sydney and and the the, puppy incident at the tennis court oh, all of that sounds like it shows that the Earl of Oxford is mingling with pretty much the nobility um, at all the different castles yes oh. Around England, yeah, it, it get yeah it makes it more easily understandable that the real author was writing about his peer group, not as someone like Shakespeare wanting to, you know, write outside of his class. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at most of the protagonists uh, of of the plays are high nobility or kings and queens and princesses and duchesses and dukes. 
and that was the Earl of Oxford's world. His his family was one of the oldest in England. Um, the earldom of Oxford was like, I think, several hundred years old, maybe 500 years old, when he inherited, be, be, became the 17th earl. Uh, most of the other nobility were like the first baron or the second earl or you know they were very low on the scale he he really came from a very prestigious famous family and um that gets us into the reason why he would use a pen name or write anonymously it's because writing plays and poem and being involved in literature or and actors uh, that was considered, uh, you know, unrespectable and, you know, just not s- something that someone of that rank should be doing. Should It was considered frivolous. Um, you should be, if you were a nobleman, uh, you should be helping the queen in some way as a minister or a general or a, mm-hmm. uh, a judge or something, something along those lines. Um, but when you look historical record, which was only recently uh, discovered, was that the Earl of Oxford, it was discovered in the 20th century, the Earl of Oxford got a thousand pound per year grant from the Royal Treasury. And there was no accounting needed to be made. So, you know, in our, the way we look at it is that he was helping produce these plays. And, um, for for not only the queen's entertainment but also for uh, educating the masses about England's history. So many of the plays are they're called history plays because they're all about you know great events in England's past. And uh, in the when the grant was issued, which is 1586, England was facing a threat from Spain, the Spanish Armada. And uh, actually, two years later, the Armada did make an attempt, you know, to to you know attack England, but they were not successful. But it it makes one think that the like plays like Henry V, which were very patriotic, um, so many rousing speeches of of the prince uh, speaking to the troops. It, you know, this may have been a tool, you could call it propaganda, or just something of national pride to have them, you know, join together and, and try their best to defeat the enemy. Yeah. It, uh, James Warren uh, edited these centenary edition of Shakespeare Identified. Um, What was his role in this book? What did he contribute to it? Yeah, what he did was, um, you know, the book was printed in 1920, and so it the way it was laid out, the pages, the print on the pages were small, and there were a lot of spaces between the words and things like that. Uh, he he made it more um, readable to today's reader. What they, the, the format, 
what he did was he he tried to track down exactly the sources that Looney Loney used um, to write the books, so we could refer them to them now. And he found a few a few of the citations were not exact, so it, it was nice that he you know cleared up authors and dates and things like that. Um, so it was a very useful thing that he did. Um, and I'm sure he's still finding things. And um, I don't know. I think he may have. Uh, no, there was there was a pretty good index. Anyway, so he just makes it a little more accessible to today today's reader, and um, we're all grateful that he did that. He's also um, done extensive research on. Articles came out after the book, book reviews, uh, and things like uh, people's reactions, um, and his his defending himself in letters to the editor, things like that. So he's a piled, uh, compiled quite quite a, a large, um, co- you know, a collection of of Loney's writings outside of the book. So we're all very grateful to him. Is you know we've only had a chance to touch on it, some of the in, information that's uh, presented in this book. Um, I'd I'd highly recommend it. But is there anything that you, uh? You disagree with Loney about or the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship um, disagrees with his conclusion, or you know, it's a, it, it, you know pretty um, you know, that he he made some pretty strong arguments that uh, really uh, can't can't be challenged. Um yeah, I'm sorry. What what is the question or yeah. Um uh, just for the 100 years that this book has been out, is there anything you or the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship disagree with Loney about? Um there's um, I mean, we're all different, and I don't think the uh, fellowship. I mean, we the fellowship doesn't have a, a list of what they think is right and wrong about Loney. I think I think that we basically have come together because we all agree that his conclusion is correct that the 17th Earl of Oxford was the, the true Shakespeare. Um, I think um, on my end, I. I think maybe he didn't quite explain um the Stratford man's role. Um, and there are some of his conclusions about certain poetry works that may or may have um, you know been written by Oxford as well. So he uh, Loney published a book of Oxford's poems and I think he included some that were not that that I would think were actually um, Shakespeare or Shakespearean. 
I think that would be the only point of disagreement on my end. But that's open to question, you know. Okay, you know, you've edited a book on Edward de Vere's letters and poems. What did you glean from that experience? Did you see patterns or uh, repetition of the use of certain words or phrases that we see in the plays or sonnets? Um, I, it's for, on my end, what I found was the tone. The tone and the gentility um, is similar as what you would find in a Shakespeare play of nobility speaking. I, I see that very much. But I, I have not done an analysis of the words, but actually somebody has. Uh, last name is Fowler, and he goes line by line um, with the Earl of Oxford's letters. We have about um, 70 or so letters of his. They're mostly business letters. And he finds parallels with lines in some of the Shakespeare plays. So it's a, that's a very useful book. Um, William Plumer Fowler is his name. Okay, and when if people want to learn more about this book, you, know, you said that the there is a conference on March 4th at the prestigious National Press Club. Uh, maybe Barbara and I will speak, be speaking there ne- next year. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but well, what, they're, they're, we're going to have speakers, about three or four speakers. Um, it's in the afternoon from, I believe, 1 till 4, and uh, it's fair, fairly close to the Bolger Shakespeare Library, and people, you know, they could head on in there, too, and you, I believe they they usually have a display of Shakespeare's first folio um, in, the, in the main lobby, so I'm sure it's always a good thing to go there. Yeah, so... So uh, people can tour, see the lecture, then walk a few blocks away to the Folger Shakespeare Library. Yeah, yeah, that would be a nice day <laughs> for uh, Shakespeare okay. lovers. But of course, okay. um, the uh, Folger Shakespeare Library—I mean, they—they they don't really comment about the authorship question, unfortunately. Um, but that's the same for most Shakespeare um, organizations, you know, uh, attached to academics, and that's the unfortunate thing. Um, if you spent your a great deal of your life uh, reading and teaching Shakespeare, and you don't really you don't want to know about controversy that surrounds him, you wouldn't want to investigate it on your own. I. I I find that sad. 
<laughs> like I said, Loney's book really was the, the the greatest discovery in Shakespeare scholarship. And but Loney is unknown, and we're still trying to get the Earl of Oxford out to the general public so they can know him. The, the people who love Shakespeare, uh, when they discover the real man, the, their whole experience of Shakespeare is just going to be filled with a, more multi-dimensions and biographical references that just make reading the place even more wonderful. And that's the whole point. Yeah. In the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship uh, website does have more and more people discussing about why they became Oxfordians. Um, Are are more people picking up a copy of Shakespeare Identified or – Hopefully they're hearing some of these shows, but it yes. seems like more people are also realizing that things just have not a- added up with the traditional biography of the man from Stratford. Yes, more more and more people are um, becoming interested and convinced, and um, they include you know people like Sir Derek Jacobi, who's a Shakespearean actor of, of renown, and um, Mark Rylance, another he's he's a Sir Mark Rylance, he's another Shakespeare actor. Um, he's not a hundred percent for Oxford, but he's definitely not he, he's not convinced there that. The Stratford Man was the great author. Um, those are just two. But um, if you go to another great site besides the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, is doubtaboutwill.org, and you can read a petition that we call the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt, and um, you know saying that it just can't be the Stratford Man, and you can sign it and be one of the signatories and there are as i believe 4400 at the moment and most of the signatories are people with higher degrees some of them are english too english uh degrees but um you know we're we're trying to establish credibility but the 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 main people that we want to convince are the english professors and english departments and unfortunately, they're just not open to discussion, or they they have been in a very limited way. And um, unfortunately, they treat our theory as, you know, um, not convincing. <laughs> or uh, I, I mean, that's a very nice term for it. Or they 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 call people who question it. Uh, amateurs or snobs you know they just cast aspersions um i would just say hey prove your man the Stratford man prove that he was a great author with evidence during his lifetime not the posthumous evidence that really doesn't count (laughs) let's let's get the 
lifetime evidence. And if you look at the lifetime evidence for the Earl of Oxford, it just it's overwhelming. Uh, the, the everything about Shakespeare can be accounted for with with the Earl. If, the Earl of Oxford's life. I mean, his superlative education, his knowledge of Europe, um, his knowledge of the law. Um, you know, you had to go to special law society to get the law to the extent that, that Shakespeare knew it. In fact, his knowledge of the law is probably what got Baconians interested. And also Mark Twain. He was a he he wrote an, an authorship book too uh, against the Stratford Man in 1909. It's called "Is Shakespeare Dead?" Um, and he was convinced that it wasn't the Stratford Man because of his, uh, Shakespeare's knowledge of law. And there's just absolutely no record of uh, William Shakespeare attending these law societies. And these uh, records exist. The records is, exist also for Oxford and Cambridge universities which were the main universities where you could learn things like ancient Greek and mm-hmm. medicine and other languages, uh, which Shakespeare knew. Um, and there's no William Shakespeare on those roles either. But the Earl of Oxford went to Oxford. He went to Cambridge. Actually, he was eight years old when he went to Cambridge. So he was a child prodigy. And... Um, he was also a, a, a major figure in, in the Elizabethan court, and yet very little is, was really written about him historically. He was kind of left out of history, which is also a little suspicious. You know, was that intentional? And um, it, it could be because the works perhaps reveal something a little too hot. And um, certainly... There is a lampooning of the Queen's top minister in Hamlet that's accepted by historians. And um, that was Lord Burley. And Lord Burley was Oxford's guardian at first when he was in his teens. And then he became his son-in-law. So he knew him very well to sort of lampoon him. And... um, it's you know uh, it just speaks for itself at at every turn that it, that it, the true author was the Earl of Oxford. Yeah, uh, all the information that you, know, you brought up tonight and what can be found in Shakespeare identified uh, just can't be. Uh, attributed to just coincidence there's it, it, it just seems like been attributing these remarkable literary feats to the wrong person for over 400 years you know we get the in one of the sonnets, you get the uh, uh, what was it the phrase like uh, you know, besmirched youth or you know, as like uh, his yeah you know, the author was uh, embarrassed about his past and I can't believe that someone would 
a nobleman would be so uh, feel so completely worthless all these years later after you know, like uh, the, the deer poaching incident at Charlecote Park. I just don't <laughs> see it, it, it just it just doesn't add up but once you start looking at evidence that the real author was a nobleman all the pieces start coming uh, uh together it's you know like a puzzle and i yeah you know, there's just so many new topics that we, uh you know we haven't discussed and even with Ramon and Alex um well, we haven't gotten to them but uh you know the, the, there really is um so many you know really fabulous observations and um captivating uh yeah. summaries in, in, in this book that I, you know, it, 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 if people are interested in the subject this is kind of like the granddaddy of all, all the shakespeare authorship controversy books Yes, and he he gets into the psychology kind of as well, and I think that's what attracted mm-hmm. Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was a big Oxfordian, <laughs> um, so I mean I, I think he it also helped him um, explain some of his theories. He used some Shakespeare plays uh, with this added dimension of the Earl of Oxford, um, but if the you know, psychologically, if if somebody lover of Shakespeare really wants to get the author to know the great author, it's you've got to read the sonnets. The sonnets are really his deep outpouring of you know his inner soul and uh, beyond the expression of love for two people, very important people in his life, and. Um, we can just throw out another interesting parallel. Uh, there's someone that he addresses, a beautiful, dark-haired lady that he addresses, and he's very uh, almost obsessed by. And um, the same thing w- was so for the Earl of Oxford. He, um, that When he w- was estranged from his wife, he took a mistress, and she was a dark-haired beauty, um, one of the queen's attendants. And uh, he, they had a child together. And as a result of that, when the queen got wind of it, uh, both she and the Earl of Oxford were thrown in prison for about three months. So, you know, and everywhere you turn, you're going to find a perfect parallel with the Earl of Oxford. Mm-hmm. And there's one great line in uh, Sonnet 76, every word doth almost tell my name. And we say... Every is Evere, every word in a name play. Um doth almost tell my name and it certainly it certainly does. Okay. Um 
that sounds like we're back to this is not a random coincidence you know happenstance type thing that uh occurs in sonnet seventy six with you know where where he's basically Edward de Vere's basically including his last name in the that line of the poem or the son, yeah. uh, or the sonnet uh, that that's that just doesn't randomly happen yeah he also refers to his lameness and the Earl of Oxford was injured in a street fight with the uh, family members of the, of this mistress that he had, the Dark Lady. And um, the great author speaks of his his own lame, lameness in Sonnet 37. So, I mean, it just everywhere you look, uh, it's his story. It just fits like a glove. And um, it's just something that can't be ignored because... For lovers of Shakespeare, their their experience is just going to be so much more enriched, and that's the reason why I'm doing this. And beyond beyond the um, the the injustice that was done to him, you know, um, being divorced from his incredible works that he knew were great, um, it, it's it's tragic, and it's time to to write the record. Mm-hmm. And Loney even said it himself. He said that this demands a difficult revolution in mental attitude. Mm. Uh, it's powerful. Dif- difficult for people who you know subscribe to, to, to the Stratford man uh, as the great author. He, they've just they've got to look at the evidence and have a, a revolution in mental attitude, you know. Uh, I agree. It's not yeah, easy, but once once you do it, it's going to be so rewarding, in my opinion. Okay, so uh, what are some things you have coming up or the uh, fellowship? You know, there's the March 4th uh a conference at uh, the National Press Club. Uh, do you have anything going on or anything well, else going on with the uh, fellowship? Yeah, well, there there will be um, the conference. We have an annual conference, and it's going to be in Ashland this year um, in Oregon. And, um, you know, that's where... Every year, there's many Shakespeare plays performed in Ashland. It's a mecca for Shakespeareans, so um, uh, you can learn about you know the details on the fellowship web's, website. And I will probably be speaking as well. I'm okay. also working uh, on a it. new book, you know, but <laughs> I'm unfortunately okay. a, slow, a slow writer. So. What? Uh, do, do you know what your topic is going to be at the Ashland conference? Um, not yet. I'm still working on it. Okay. Well, you still have what nine months or so. 
Yeah, it's toward the end of the year. I believe it's October 1st this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, all right. You know, you wanted to just uh, do an hour. Uh, do, you, uh, do, do you have any final conclusions you want to interject or have you know, Barbara step in and wrap things up? Just learn about uh, Shakespeare Identified by uh, J. Thomas Loney, and um, that's the reason for our discussion today. A hundred years has passed, and let's let's start to right the wrongs. That's that's my message. Okay, and it it, it really is an excellent book. I I'm glad you brought that to my attention and once I got it I was like oh wow this is uh, fantastic I've just been enthralled by it for about the month I've been reading it Yes, and there's been, you know, subsequent, um, a, a few years later, there was a, a wonderful biography of the Earl of Oxford by V.M. Uh, Ward. And um, and in uh, Maloney's book was reissued, I believe, in the 40s. And then um, it was issued again by Oxfordians, the, the Millers. They, they put out... Um, an annotated edition as well, and so you know it's gotten a lot of attention over the decades um, among our our society. And um, but you know he he didn't he didn't explain everything. And um, when uh, Charlton Ogburn he he wrote a wonderful book in 1984 called The Mysterious William Shakespeare, and he he really crystallized the case for for both. Um, against the Stratford Man and for the Earl of Oxford um, in a beautiful, beautifully written book. And um, what my book, you know, which I first published in 2011 and reprinted in 2016, um, was to just try and uh, put all the loose ends together in one unified theory as to what really happened. And the last two chapters of my book, I, I explain, you know, what was behind it and how the Stratford man got the authorship. <laughs> and it was really after his death that it was given to him. And uh, by the, the first folio, the, the opening pages. So anyway, I, I get into m- more detail, detail that Loney really didn't get into. His was really just to identify the real author, and that's that's the importance for us. Okay. So uh, we can end there, and um, unless you have a last-minute idea that. Uh, you want to bring up? Uh, we, we could have Barbara step in and uh, wrap up the show. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I. Yeah. 
please. Okay. <clears throat> Mark, you, you, you have the longest goodbyes and tie-ups ever. Thank you, everybody, for being with us tonight. I hope you learned something. I know I sure did. Uh, look for us again tomorrow night at 9, nine o'clock with uh, Mary Joyce, and then, of course, next Monday and Tuesday as well. I uh, hope you are having a good evening. Thank you for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Check out the YouTube channel, and if you like what you hear, please make sure you subscribe. Good night now.